What the? Mike, did you pick this? What? Hey, welcome to the Wise Guys Podcast. I'm Dr. Michael Terrian. And I'm Scott Lieb. We're two friends who are following Jesus into the joys and challenges of everyday life. Yeah, you gotta be right. Against the microphone. Yes, because what you say needs to be heard. You need to be heard. You have a deep desire to be heard. And that's a good thing. No, it's a good thing. You need to be heard. All right. You just flipped that right into my face. I sure did. I'm kind of... It sounded like you were saying that... Unfortunately, I'm that good at that. I, that people need to hear me. Well, that's... Yeah. But what you were really saying is that <laughs> I have this need to be heard. So thank you. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm... It's so sad that I am really good at that. I'm really good at... Uh, my words can just cut people apart. like a knife cuts like a knife so says brian adams huh. um right. okay here's what i want to talk about um and you 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 can sort of i'm just gonna verbally vomit and you can kind of try to try to organize it um all right that sounds nice just <laughs> distance yourself from me just a little bit <laughs> yes here it goes Blah. um i uh I'm, I, I'm probably, well, I don't know how to say this because I don't know if I necessarily feel like I'm a rebellious person by nature. I might be, okay? I'm going to throw that on the table. I, I, in terms of my gifts and stuff, I'm highly adaptable. I have a highly apostolic, you know, an apostolic entrepreneurial kind of spirit about me. Um, self-assurance, you know, so I... I I tend to live in the will a lot, like where I will, I will act and then ask for forgiveness later. And um, I put enough thought into my actions to, to have, a, have a certain sense of, am I going to die? Is this going to end my life? Is this going to get me fired? You know, and then I, then I just do it. So Go up right to the line. I do. I, I can have a tendency to go right up to the line. So, um, there have been many instances lately in, uh, especially in my conversations with people and in the church observations of like rebelliousness, you know, like we live in a time where there's all these people on either end of the spectrum and like the, the far right conservative people are saying this and it seems like they're rebelling against something and the far left is saying this and they're rebelling against something and you know like I, I here here's a funny story i'm sorry i know this is a long setup but uh i worked in an environment where they hired me as a youth minister and i come in and i'm i'm really excited very enthusiastic about my my vision for youth ministry which i think is formed through in good things you know but they were things that these guys didn't realize were going to push back on a lot of the prevailing uh, cultural kind of stuff that was going on in that church, like what they thought was important, what groups they gave, blah, 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 you know, attention to. And so I was told the priest one time in a meeting is trying, there was a fly that was flying around and, and he's swatting at it. And, and at some point he got so exhausted and exasperated with what I was presenting to him that he said, you know what? You're like this fly that just won't go away. <laughs> and, uh, and I started laughing, and I'm like, you hired me 
Like, what? I don't understand what you, you know. So <laughs> I've always gotten this, like, I'm a maverick, I'm a rebel kind of attitude. Because I do push back, I think, a lot of times on the prevailing cultural stuff that that exists in Paris settings and stuff like that. Anyway, the whole point is, Jesus, sometimes I think Jesus w w acted the part of the rebel, you know, and uh, we can get into that a little bit and I'll tell you why. But I'm just, I'm always, I'm obedience, okay? Like obedience to things. I want to talk about obedience and what blind obedience for me makes me want to throw up in my mouth, you know, like, because I, I want to be sure that what I'm obeying is the right thing, right? And, but sometimes the right thing is not always so crystal clear because there is maybe the ideal right thing. And then there's authority and that authority might be, uh, doing something that is not necessarily the ideal it's not immoral, let's say, okay, let's assume none, none of what the authority is saying is immoral. But I'm being asked to obey, uh, you know, something, maybe they disobeyed at some point, the ideal, and I'm being asked to obey the disobedience. And I, that just drives me crazy. And I see that a lot in the church. There's like factions of people that, that are, you know, disobeying the disobedient or oh, disobeying the disobedience it's so complicated but anyway that's my verbal vomit and you make sense of that because you're the master <laughs> yeah well i guess it does explain why at least two hours of every team meeting we have is tied up with me trying to explain my decisions so that you can be on board with things <laughs> That, oh, do you really feel like that? Oh, gosh. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry if I've made you feel like that. Because we know you're not going to just do what you're told. But I trust you. <laughs> I do have a deep trust and respect for you. No, I'm, I'm exaggerating. That's not really my experience with you. But um, um, no, I mean, I think on, on some levels, I, I, I certainly share some of those same thoughts. You know, sort of sentiments, I guess I could say, but, but I guess what, what I think would be really helpful because you and I have been having this conversation for weeks now, and we keep going around and around, and I've been thinking about it sort of offline and thinking about, well, okay, what what's the best way to try to address this? And and mm. and I should just as a caveat say that you know I wrote my doctoral dissertation on on law in Aquinas, and I I I, I think. Aquinas has an amazing understanding of what law is and how it should function and 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 its nature, and um, and so that that really informs everything I'm about to say. But it's going to take me a little bit of time to kind of lay out some fundamental ground principles here because I think this is important. Yeah. So take your time. Okay, thanks. <laughs> so, you know, he gives he gives us a very basic definition of law. Is it's it's basically a dictative reason that's promulgated or communicated by a legitimate authority for the sake of the common good. That's the definition of law. And, and, a, and a law can become uh, not law or lack the character of law if it violates any of those points. So if it's not a dictate of reason, in other words, it's not reasonable, and it's not actually communicated effectively to those who are subject to that, and if the dictate 
doesn't direct the actions of those who are subject to that law to the actual common good, then whatever the ruler might say is not actually does not actually have the character of law. Hmm. Okay, so let's just we got to start with that. So it's really important that any law has the character of something wise, like it's an expression of the wisdom of the ruler or the prudence of the ruler, the ability of the ruler to look at a social situation, look at a social organization and say, what's the most effective way to organize the actions of everybody in this group so that what's good for the whole group gets realized in some way, okay? And it's not it 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 can't be oh it's just cuz this is i'm in charge and i have the power and therefore i want to do it my way that's 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 aquinas's definition of tyranny mm-hmm. because what a tyrant does is govern to to the the end at which they govern for which they govern is always their own personal benefit their own personal gain that's that's his definition it doesn't matter whether they use violence it doesn't matter whether they have tanks and you know armies backing them A tyrant is anybody who exercises their authority for the sake of their own personal interest and not what is genuinely to the good of the whole group over which they have authority. That seems like that could get very, very gray very quickly. Well, it it does because for law to be reasonable, you have to have some idea or understanding and experience around what kind of actions actually conduce to a good end or a good outcome. So when you have, like, for example, the more experience that a person has, generally they're going to be better at at ruling over a situation than someone who's new and green and very little experience. Mm. So a lot of times young people have ideals and they implement laws somehow through their influence that, that don't work at all. Uh, because they don't, they can't anticipate the kind of what we would call a- external externalities or like the unintended consequences of that action, because they haven't lived long enough to actually see how certain things can play out in real life. You know, so you know, it, it's so I, I, again, I'm speaking in the abstract, not in the concrete yet, but just sure. like okay. So now, what's the common good? Well, the common good has two parts to it, because that's the third part of the definition. Well, I, I should say something about the communication. It's really important in order for law to, to have its proper effect. Everybody has to know what the rules are. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times people don't. Um, or they don't understand the, the reasons behind the rules. They, there, there's no, you know, there's no understanding. There, it, and, and it can. In that situation, it can become blind obedience. It, it's kind of like, think about when you're a child and your parents tell you something and you don't really understand their reasons for why they're telling you you can't, say, go to the party or whatever. And you just have to blindly obey because you don't have enough life experience to really understand what they see and know from their own experience. So you have to trust. But as a child gets into their teenage years, that's not good enough. Like the child, as the child matures and grows up, they got to kind of know the reasons. they got to know, like the, you have to spend some time explaining to them. This is why, because, you know, and that's how you start to actually shape a child's moral faculties and their ability to, to use their conscience and to, and to judge things correctly for themselves. Makes sense. Okay. But in the beginning, you can't do that. And, and so that, that communication of what are the expectations, what are the rules that we play by, and then what are the reasons behind those rules, it's very important. Because otherwise, blind obedience can, can open any organization or society up to abuse. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 
And we've seen a lot of that in the church. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, whatever you say, Father, you know, right. fill in the dots. Yeah. Um, we, we just have been living through this horrible scandal of little children that right. blindly obeyed their elders and got yeah. abused for it. Yeah. So it's, it, you know, there's... Oh, anyway, so to the common good. When we're talking about the common good, we're talking about some, some end or some ultimate purpose that really shapes and defines the meaning and purpose of that organization. Like, why do we exist? And there has to be some, you know, there has to be some way that we organize ourselves within ourselves, among ourselves, certain rules that we agree to live by that are going to actually conduce us and lead us to a favorable outcome that's beneficial to everybody. Like, that's that's the definition of a common good. It's not the private good of some people. Like, these people over here get to benefit, but not these people over here, you know? So, if you, let's just use the liturgy, because that's ultimately what's in the backdrop of this conversation we're having. You know, when you think about, well, the purpose of the, uh, the, the assembly that comes together on Sunday to worship is the worship of God. Mm-hmm. So, there has to be some sort of organized and coordinated way in which we do that so that we attain that end or purpose, which is common worship. And of course, we're going to do that within a tradition and within a certain set of principles and convictions that we have, which we'll have to get to in a little bit. But the, but so for the sake of the common good, there's got to be some way in which we in, internally organize ourselves. That's what we call the intrinsic common good. That is, it's the good of how we're all going to work together. And then the extrinsic common good is for the sake of giving God his due worship that we owe him. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, I, I'm going to I'm gonna explain one more thing, and then I'll stop, because then we can kind of like dial, d- delve into specifics. So that process of organizing the members of a, of a group internally for the sake of it directing our actions to that external thing, right, that's what we call law. Law is the process by which we legislate what's to be done and what's to be avoided in order to attain whatever then it is that we've come together for. Sure. Think about sports, right? We all agree to live by certain rules on the basketball court or on the baseball field or wherever, football field. Um, and we play by those rules and there's referees because you can't actually play the game and you can't attain the purpose of the game, which is to win fairly in any just sort of way without the rules. Mm. Like So that's why you decide what the rules of the game are and then we play that game and we have people adjudicate whether or not those rules have been violated or not, and then each team competes for the sake of attaining, you know, the the end, which is to win. And together, both teams agree that we're here because we want to play this this game together. You know, like for all sorts of reasons we might have. Yeah. But if we don't have a common set of rules that we play by, there's no game. And those rules can change because they have rules committees they that can. meet every year to because. Right, because you're you're weighing competing values. For example, football is a good example. Like, there's certain ways that football players can't hit each other anymore because over the course of the tradition of playing the game of football, we realize that there are certain injuries that are not they're not proportionately good to the good of playing or right. the good of winning. Like, life is more valuable than the game. Mm-hmm. So, we changed the rules a little bit. Yeah, we had other rules where it's like, well, it's no fun because it's so restrictive. So we're going to loosen up the rules a little bit to make it a little bit more competitive. Yeah, like for example, I thought in baseball it's interesting how you know in the pros you have to use you have to use a wood bat. It's just harder to right. 
to it's harder to win. It makes it more competitive and more interesting. And you have a pitch clock now and stuff like that to get the right. game moving a little bit quicker so that it's more interesting and yeah, yeah. So, so if if that helps, hopefully you know. But the fundamentals of of that, you know, the there's still three outs, you know, per inning. There's right. still you have to score a touchdown. You have to cross. You know, you have to enter into the end zone for a touchdown to, you know, I mean, there's fundamentals that I can't imagine changing, changing. without the game changing. And that, Correct. and now you're te- te- you're, you're teeing yeah. me up for the last point yes. that I'm making. Good job. You're just, you're out in front. <laughs> so, I feel like I'm a fish on a line that you're just <laughs> reeling like, in. Yeah, good. So there's two, there in, in, when we talk about laws, there's two types of laws that every society and every organization has to grapple with. There are laws which are essential and non-negotiable for the sake of attaining that end, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. In in the in the order of ethics, we call that we we call those sort of like the laws of the natural law. Mm-hmm. Like every nation under Earth has to like it's, it's going to outlaw murder because no society can really work if if open murder is allowed. Um, so there are certain essential precepts of that, and so to your example of a game. There are certain rules of every game that make make the game the game. Yeah. And if you change the rules, those essential rules, it's not that game anymore. It's something else. Right. So if we want to play this game, then we have to, there's certain non-negotiable rules that have to be carried out. But there are also, and these these other order of laws or rules are called positive laws, is what we call them. That is some legitimate authority has to, the the essence of the game doesn't decide everything for us there are certain things that have to just be determined by a legitimate authority is it going to be this way or that way so the example i always use is like it, it, driving it is an essential feature of the sanctity of human life that we all drive on the same side of the road going the same direction for the sake of safeguarding human life Okay. Sure. It's non-negotiable. If everybody could decide <laughs> I'm just which imagining the yeah, opposite scenario. If everybody scenario, decided it'd be fun. which side of the it's road like they wanted game. to drive. Yeah. yeah, it'd be like a video game. It would be utter chaos. We couldn't get anywhere. <laughs> but whether that's the right side of the road or left side of the road, nature itself doesn't give us the answer. Mm-hmm. Someone has to just decide it's going to be yeah. on the right, right. or it's going to be on the left. So there are essential laws and then there are positive laws. Okay. Got now it. The, the essential laws are non-negotiable. You can't change them without changing the fundamental nature of what you're trying to do and what you're trying to achieve. There are other things that can change and might need to change as the circumstances and conditions within which you're doing whatever you're doing changes. Sure. Okay. So having a proper understanding of all of those things, yeah. like what's the definition of a law, what kind of laws are we talking about, and what is the purpose and function of law you know, and what's the nature of the common good. The problem in our society today, whether it's in the church or in the world, is we just don't understand the nature of law. We, we, we've just gotten so sideways and confused with, um, first of all, treating every precept the same, mm-hmm. as though it has the same moral gravity. Um, we have a tendency to absolutize relativistic type of positive precepts, and and um, relativizing absolute non-negotiable precepts. And we're living in a society today where it's, it's kind of an epidemic. Like, we, you know, we just absolutize things that are really relative, 
relative and mm-hmm. we relativize things that are actually non-negotiable okay. and, and absolute. So so let me let me pause there. Yeah. And and what like in terms of just understanding the concepts that we're dealing with, it, what would be helpful in terms yeah. of drilling yeah. into and understanding better. So okay, I, I this might be a dumb dummy dummy dumb question. <laughs> but in the example of okay, let's say speed limits Right. Speed limits would be a positive law. Right. Like, yes. OK. Uh, so let's say we let's say there's a highway that exists. And for whatever reason, the 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 authority the you know, the the people granted the authority to determine that speed limit. Uh, let's say it's flat. You can see forever. And the speed limit is 40 miles an hour. Right. Let's say I as a driver, I'm like, this is crazy. Right. Like I'm going to drive 65 and, and in a safe manner because there's no reason, you know, it's unreasonable. Let's say that the speed limit might be 40 miles an hour. So I drive 60 miles, 65. I get pulled over. You know, I, I have to pay an exorbitant amount of money because I violated that speed limit. But that speed limit in my mind is unreasonable. You know, I w- is it is it unreasonable or is it would it be considered like uh, bad on my part to to take you know some laws I mean let's admit can we admit that some laws are stupid positive laws positive rules or whatever that you said are stupid and is it okay to break them Yeah yeah no it's a great question and this is where we we have to distinguish between those kind of non-negotiable precepts and positive precepts. There's a there's a dictum that Aquinas gives us that the more we descend into particulars, the more exceptions a rule will admit. So there can be conditions or circumstances within which wherein it would be reasonable for you to drive fast. Okay, so let's say you're driving down that stretch of highway and your wife is pregnant and giving birth and the baby's coming out and you're trying to get to the hospital. Well, you're not bound by that speed limit under those conditions because there's a greater good that's at stake, namely the life of your wife and the child. And it's and it, 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 life it, uh, obliges you right, to drive as safely as you can at a speed that's going to get you there more quickly. Uh, that actually happened to me. My wife, I ran... Some you rule breaker. I know. I ran some red lights in Grand Rapids when oh. my wife was giving birth to Brielle. And we got pulled over, actually, and then when I told, well, the cop, I didn't even have to say anything. He saw my wife, and mm. he just jumped into his car, threw his lights on, and escorted us to oh, the hospital. Nice and then I'm like, yeah. So, so it, it but, but, but here's where the common good takes precedence over my particular judgment. And this is, again, is this a matter of the common good or the private good? So let me ask you this. What would happen if every single person driving down a highway or any given road, it was up to them to decide what their reasonable safe speed was what would happen well yeah i mean i guess uh <laughs> i guess uh, yeah many people would have different versions of what is reasonable you know i so and would that be would so the non-negotiable is safety and and the value of human life on the road so right so I'm at what at, point do you compromise right that fundamental value for the sake of everybody's personal preference at what point does that happen yeah i'm not sure i'm in my situation uh you know as, and this is scott lieb's version of it i'm looking around 
the it's fields. You know, there's I'm not in a residential area. Um, there's you know no major roads that are intersecting with it. It's a straight stretch of highway. But for whatever reason, they determined that 40 mile, maybe it's because they want to pull people over and make money. You know, I don't know what that reason might be. But in my, yeah, I guess in my mind. So I, I suppose I mean, like I mean, each in, person in would real, have to have a certain level of reasonability. I'm not going to drive 65 miles an hour through a neighborhood that's posted 25, you know, because right. there's a reason. It makes sense right. that there would be a reason why it's 25. Yeah, so so there's a there's another principle which is that of due process, which is like how do you make the what's the process by which we determine the positive law? Like what there's got to be a process. Like somebody's got to decide that and it's got to be based on some set of criteria. So first of all, in, in the real world, at least in our real world of the United States of America, there is no road like that that where you're forced to drive 40 miles an hour. You're you're driving some. you're driving 65 <laughs> And and given modern braking systems and and the the safety of cars today, a case can be made that you probably could drive just as safely at seventy five. Mm-hmm. You know, think of the autobahn in Germany. You know, right. it's like there's no top end speed limit really. They they allow that. Yeah, but, I think of stretches of right. seventy nine here. Yeah, where there's nothing around, yeah. and the, it's fifty five on there. Yeah. Why? Why shouldn't it be seventy? Well, it, 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 you know, I, I don't know why. I don't, I can't answer that question in the particular. Like the why? No, well, I mean, because I don't know what the reasons right, is. Right, it right, could right. just be that nobody has time to actually look at that and change the law, and mm. we don't want to pay for new signs, and we have other things to worry about. Right. But the other thing too on the on the on the enforcement side of things. I mean, look, if you're driving, if it's safe conditions, and you're cruising along, and you're even ten miles over the speed limit, in a lot of places, cops yeah, aren't going to pull you over. Way. Sure. Yeah, because because they know that there's some margin there. Because again, it's a positive precept, and it's unreasonable to try to enforce that to the letter, you know. But if you get in an accident and you hurt someone, you're going to get the maximum, yeah. you know, for that. So that's kind of how we negotiate those kind of situations. But th- back to the original question: if we say it's okay morally for everybody to decide for themselves what's reasonable, um, again, it's going to devolve into chaos. I get it. Okay. So there's got to be a due process, even though the particular precept might not be reasonable. So, and this is where we, we, out of respect for order and justice and out of the respect for the common good, we do have an obligation, and as Christians, it's a very specified obligation from the New Testament that we are to obey laws and legitimate authority, even if the laws are stupid. Okay. The only time, let me just finish yeah, this yeah, and then I'll, yeah, yeah. the only time we shouldn't is if we are directly commanded to do something which is contrary to the law of God. Mm-hmm. In that case, we're obligated to say, no, I thank you very much, but I can't do that. Okay. Right. So, with that said, um, when it, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but I'd love to dive into it a little, a little more, but... It seems like there's multiple instances in the New Testament where Jesus uh, is challenged because he's encouraging or allowing his followers to go against the law. And obviously not, not anything major, but for instance, picking wheat in a field and eating it on, on, a, on a day that they're, you know, everybody else is not allowed. Or 
performing some type of miracle on a day where, you know, that would be considered work or whatever it might be, and it's not allowed. And Jesus is pretty clear. He's like, I mean, those are dumb rules, you know, <laughs> and those rules don't apply to he, him and his followers. So, you know, uh, it seems like in some sense, the, you know, the, on the ideal, it's like, well, we should be obedient to, even to these rules that some authority, in this case, an authority that God has given these uh, leaders, you know, the, the, the leaders of the church at that time, to, to establish. And he was like, no, like he determined, and I, I get it, you know, Jesus determines what he has an authority that supersedes their authority. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's, that's not a... That's not just a minor point. <laughs> it might be the whole point. But I guess what I'm saying is, it's it, you know, for for people like me who have who do maybe have this, you know, a little bit of a rebellious heart. Like, um, what I sometimes think Jesus is saying to me in the face of in the face of sometimes in the church of like a rule or or something like that 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 an authority, whether it be a priest or a bishop has established is like, you know, I'm looking at it through that lens of like, well, even Jesus was like, this is, this is unreasonable. It's not, not necessary. Yeah. But, well, but, but see, okay, so you're right, but let's go back to what we established already so we can think through this clearly. So are you, you saying have, that I'm you unclear? Have, no, no, no. But I no, no, no. I mean, you're raising no, I can take you're it. raising the right question and the right objection to actually push us to a greater degree of clarity of understanding his own actions. So, under the circumstance of eating the grain, you know, the 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 grain on the Sabbath. The question then is: Okay, so there are Sabbath rules, which exists which exists for the sake of what? What's the purpose of those rules, okay? And within within the ceremonial law of ancient Israel, there are going to be certain essential non-negotiable goods, and then there are going to be certain precepts which are a matter of positive law mm-hmm. that would apply in most circumstances and cases, but not every one, because the more you descend into the specifics, the more exceptions there is going to be. So what's the fundamental good you know, and Jesus says it very clearly: the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So, it's it's for the overall well-being of the human person that God commands the human person to rest. But in many places, He challenges the litigiousness of the Pharisees because their their layers of human traditions, their positive precepts, have gotten to a point where they're actually obstructing the purpose of the Sabbath law. So. If you're, you know, which one of you, if your animal falls into a cistern, isn't going to get your animal out on the Sabbath. And yet, here's the person who has a dropsy arm. Why shouldn't I heal him? Isn't my healing him actually the purpose of the Sabbath? So, you're there, what they're doing is they're relativizing the absolute value and they're absolutizing the relative values. And therefore, they're abusing their authority and they're abusing the law. And Jesus, who is the authority, is saying, let me help you understand why I promulgated the Sabbath for 
all of you. It was for your good, not so that your life became more complicated and difficult and unbearable. He hammers the Pharisees and the Sadducees all through the New Testament on this problem mm-hmm. because they've become so officious and so litigious around, you know, he, at one point he says, you know, you, you strain out the gnat in order to swallow the camel. That's exactly the principle that I laid out. Yeah. The essential things that really matter are thrown to the wayside for the sake of your traditions, which have, in the grand scheme of things, very little significance, they conduce very little to the good yeah. for which the law exists. So, hypothetically— So, if my apostles are hungry mm-hmm. on the Sabbath, right. they should be able to eat. So, hypothetically, <laughs> let's say that that same kind of scenario exists today, right? Hypothetically. Well, it does. <laughs> <laughs> Who has the authority, then— to kind of call these, call like the modern day Pharisees to the carpet and declare that they've got it wrong or that it's, it's not, you know, their, their priorities are distorted or skewed. You know, obviously Jesus had the authority to do that because of who he is. Who has the authority to do that nowadays? If you're, if you're living hypothetically under a situation where that exists. Well, again, go back to Jesus saying, you know, and we just heard this reading, do whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example. So, for the sake of authority and the stability of legitimate authority, and for the sake of the credibility of the law, and for the sake of the common good, there's times in which we have to put up with and tolerate precepts that might not make a lot of sense. And... um and we have to implement a process, a due process, in order to bring change. And, and so there's responsibility and obligations all the way around. On the one hand, you know, the people of God have to, have to, have to communicate what's more sensible and makes more sense, on the one hand. And the, the established authorities of the church have to uh, take those matters and they have to discern them and pray them and decide upon them, okay? And not... Again, it can't be a matter of personal preference or how I like things. Now, let me let me apply. Let, let's just look at the liturgy itself from the same set of definitions yeah, that we've yeah. been looking at, because I think it's important. So, going all the way back to the third commandment, where Jesus he mandates um, the uh, Sabbath observance. You know, it it is essential to hu- humanity that we worship God. Like we can't fulfill all of the innate um, potential of our nature without being in a right relationship with God because our fulfillment, our happiness, our well-being depends upon having that right relationship with God um, because only God can fulfill us in the ways that we've been created to be fulfilled. Mm-hmm. So we can't get around that. Makes sense. But the, So taking a day to rest and worship and to connect to God and, and cease from our, our laborious labors that keep our faces into the ground and at the, at the you know, the workbench and the, the grinding stone, whatever. Uh, God had to command, because we all know if we aren't commanded to rest, we won't. We'll just work, 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 Just work, keep work. doing, yeah. So we need that. But, but nature doesn't tell us what day of the week that should be. Okay? So God commands them to keep holy the Sabbath. In other words, Saturday became the day. Now, when the New New Covenant came along, the New Testament came along, and the church 
began to discern. They, in the beginning, they worshiped on the Sabbath. They went to synagogue, and but for two reasons. One, because the Lord rose on Sunday, and because the Gentiles didn't necessarily observe the Sabbath the way the Jews did, it made sense to change the day of the week. It's something that's changeable. The non-negotiable of you got to worship God on a, on a, on some one day a week, right? Offer fitting worship on that day doesn't change, but what changes is maybe what day that is. And it, it was more fitting and more appropriate that we started celebrating the, the, the resurrection and celebrate the Lord's Day as the day of resurrection. So we did. We made that change. Christ himself didn't actually mandate that, but he gave the apostles the authority to make that change. Okay. okay? So let that's me, an important thing. Right. Let me, but let me ask you real quick. Now, why, in other words, does that, does that apply... In other words, uh, the the Sabbath, what is determined to be the Sabbath is for everybody. So, in other words, you can't, even though you take a day to worship God, collectively it has to be the same day as everybody else. Like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, so, well, the way the law of the church, church works right now is that the, you know, you, you're obligated to go to Mass on Sundays, but if for some compelling reason you can't, you are to, to, you know, at least make it to Mass and find another day to rest. Mm-hmm. You still have to rest. It's mass and resting are two different things. They're okay. all supposed to happen on together in a week. Okay. So ideally, everybody, you know, that's why it would be nice if Sundays, most things were closed down because then people could actually go to, ma- go to church and rest on the same day. Gotcha. Yeah. But the point is, is that worshiping God and worshiping God the way he, he kind of instituted it to happen— at the, at the Last Supper, for example, and somewhat within the context of the Sabbath celebration, sacred meal, liturgy of the Word, a liturgy of sacrifice. You know, you hear the Word, you consume the sacrifice. That's the basic Jewish structure. But the specifics of that have changed. They have. And, and Christ gave the, the apostles and their successors the authority to make those determinations, those positive determinations, Mm -hmm. as was fitting and as necessary. So over the course of the Church's history, the essential structure of the Mass, or the Divine Liturgy, if you're in the East, hasn't changed. There's a Liturgy of the Eucharist, uh, of the Word, there's a Liturgy of the Eucharist, and some of the basic, you know, the Confession of Sins, the Offertory, you know, there's these basic pieces that have always been there from Mm. the beginning because we're we're, we're inserted into a tradition that's been established over, over you know, centuries. Mm-hmm. But the particulars, those positive laws, which would be things like, well, you know, like when do we kneel? Or what are the words we're going to proclaim it exactly? You know, like what songs are permitted to be used? What's the art going to look like? Mm-hmm. Those are positive determinations that have changed over the centuries, have changed from culture to culture. Sure. Okay, so... so the apostles and their successors have the authority to make those adaptations as they discern and determine is fitting for the times and the places that we are celebrating the liturgy. Okay. And it's not for us as individual members or even individual clergy members to decide for themselves whenever they want sure. how they want to do that. Yeah. And so that's where the question, you know, even if the particular determination doesn't make any sense, well, 
there's a due process that we we try to bring about that that transformation and that change. And so, just to jump right to the heart of the matter, right? There's been kind of some back and forth with whether with with the liturgy about you know. So we could spend some time going back and rehearsing, at least at a very high level, what's gone on since Vatican II, if you want. But more recently, you know, their Pope Benedict XVI granted permission for priests to be able to celebrate um, the uh, the old rite, the the you know that that really comes down to us from the Council of Trent. When the Council of Trent, there was a there was an, a there there was a uh, a decision made that every 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 body in the Western Church should be celebrating the same mass because there were lots of different rites. So they made it more uniform and more consistent and universal across Western across the Roman Church. Okay. So when we say East and West, we don't just mean directionally, but the yeah. Western right, you know, Roman right. And did they say that is how it's always going to be? It's like this is well, eternal? Well, uh, along the way, the essential structure of that right hasn't changed, but along the way there's been ongoing updates and adaptations and, and changes, you know. And so, you know, what at, at Vatican II there was, there was a desire on the part of the council to try to simplify because over time a lot of little lowercase t traditions, little positive yeah precepts and practices were sort of like they Layered kind of accumulate yeah and so there was there was a desire to sort of peel those back and get back to the to the essential core of the roman rite and then what happened after the council again this is a very very simplistic overview but after the council it became a little bit of a free for all like what we talked about before a lot of people decided to kind of like do what they felt like doing or do what they wanted to do kind of like disobey the fundamental direction and principles laid out in the council and make their own little adaptations just like everybody driving what speed they think is reasonable mm. and and then they just did it and then apologized later and then what ended up happening is some of those changes happened so quickly and so profusely around the world that it was too hard to pull them back so they just kind of left them like some things like facing the people um, you know the the extensive use of the vernacular, even through the consistent parts of the Mass, they were supposed to be done in Latin and mm. Greek, but that went out the window. Um, you know, some of the music okay. stuff got... So can I... Away. So it, would it be fair to characterize that then as there was a, a disobedience to the the um, heart or what, you know, like the, the spirit of those documents from Vatican II? So there was a disobedience to that. I would say it, it's okay. Let's go back to the definition that a law has to be promulgated. Mm. So between sacrosanctum concilium and the actual documents that promulgated how the liturgy was supposed to be celebrated, there was this in between time in which those determinations were not made. Therefore, there wasn't a law that was promulgated because there wasn't an implementation. There weren't. There were general high level. De- directives okay. that needed to be specified and in the interim period of time that's when everything kind of got out of hand so in what should have happened is let's just continue celebrating the liturgy right now the way we have been for centuries until we decide what it needs to look like and let's let's vet that because we need to specify exactly what it is 
that's mm. permitted and not permitted. Okay. That didn't happen. Yeah. And everything just like, it was like a conflagration. Like it just, everything just ignited and, you know, so certain, there was almost kind of a grasping, I would say, like, we're going to receive communion on the hands. Priest is going to turn around and face the people. We're going to play folk music. Like there was just that kind of spirit. Now we could ask a deeper question. Why were people so eager and anxious to do that? That's a whole other question we can maybe leave for another day, but it's a good question. Why, why, why weren't people wanting to say, I don't really want to change? I, I guess what I don't understand is if, if, if a document explicitly says the priest is to face the same direction as the people, right? That's, that's a high-level, uh, um, not, maybe not a positive Face law, the but people or away from the people? Uh, face the same direction yeah. as the people. Right, mm-hmm. so they're looking in the same direction. If that's what the document says, how did we get to it? It seems like it would be an act of disobedience to to get us to where we're at right now, where the priest faces the people. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, it's complicated because again, I think in the minds of some people, that was a question that was up for question questioning. Hmm. It wasn't like there were certain things that people were spending a lot of time discussing as they were trying to go back into the early church and, and, and figure out, you know, what are those things that are essential? You know, so if you go back prior to the Constantinian era, where we weren't celebrating the Mass in churches because we didn't have church buildings, there were house churches, they were, they were celebrating the Eucharist at a meal, mm-hmm. do we go back there and kind of reconfigure and reconstruct that kind of a situation and circumvent all of the centuries where... Once we had church buildings, our liturgy looked kind of like Roman pagan ceremony. You know, I mean, and those are, you know, I, I know people that are going to say, look, I mean, we have centuries and centuries of practice of facing the same direction. Yeah. And in my opinion, I, I, we shouldn't have changed that. Yeah. There wasn't a good compelling reason to because it actually is fitting and makes a lot of sense. But other people said, no, you know, we got to go back to the way it was in the earliest church, and it was a house meal, and they wouldn't have done it that way. Well, that's a little folksy. I mean, it kind of went along with the times when everything was kind of like back to nature, and we were living through the hippie movement, and a lot of that seemed to make sense in the minds of some people. So I think what happened, if I'm to be as fair as I can be, I think some people just felt like that was an open question that could be determined, hadn't been finally decided, and so let's just go with it. We can ask for, we can ask for forgiveness sure. later. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. what happened is, is that that practice became so prevalent so quickly throughout so much of the church that there was no pulling it back, not without a huge revolt. So people wanted and liked that change, a lot of people. Not mm. everybody, but okay. a lot of people did. Okay. So so at what point in time, like, and this is the hard question to wrestle with. It's like when we're talking about conventions or we're talking about these kinds of positive customs, some things are very near and closer to the essential and other things are further away. Yeah. You know, we have to make that determination, and that's not always so easy. So, So, so here's a question I have then. If... And I guess maybe this is a question of, like, the highest authority, right? So if the church—if, if a let's say, a, a parish priest could go back and read the Vatican d- documents, you know, and, and discern or ascertain that there's a, there is a very clear right way for this to happen, 
okay? But their local authority somehow has been like maybe ad- ad- adopting the lesser sort of tra- smaller T tradition of doing it a certain way. It seems like there's a higher, a highest and best kind of thing that exists that, that has been, that was uh, developed by the, the, you know, the body of the church, right? The, whoever governed Vatican II. And then there's kind of a lesser authority, which is your local authority. Is it wrong for somebody to supersede the lesser authority to go back to what they're, you know, the, the highest kind of, do you know what I'm saying? I do know what you're saying, but yes, I do. But again, let's try to go back to the, the ground, the grounding sort of principles of what we're dealing with here. So, Sacro Sanctum Concilium needed to be further determined and specified in terms of it concretely how that was going to happen. And the way a lot of the rubrics within the Missal were written is that they're sort of like, here's the way, the ideal way, okay, preference should be given to the organ. But in the absence of an organ or a good organ player, then other things can be done, mm-hmm. okay? Yeah. It's left up to the local ordinary, that is, the local bishop, yeah. to make those determinations in their locality. So you can't say that, say, our bishop is exercising an illegitimate authority okay. to assign to his diocese how, within the boundaries given to him by the Holy See, yeah. how the liturgy is going to be celebrated. And so, if again, if you come back, and, 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 and this is what precipitated our conversation. We were talking about whether communion, you know, should be— uh, can't we just give everybody sort of the option of how they want to receive communion? And within I'm, reason. Yeah, within reason. And I was like—and my pushback on you was like, you know what? I don't really care if it's on the tongue or on, in the hand. I just wish everybody would, was told we had to do it the same way. I, you know, and if we want to put— communion rails back in the church, and let's just put communion rails back in the church. It's actually an easier way to receive communion. Like, I have no principled opposition to that. What I don't like is where, and this gets back to, you know, driving on the highway, if everybody gets to decide what their personal preference is, it, it at some point in time, it loses the character of common worship, because again, everybody's kind of doing their own thing. But again, within reason. So in other words, okay, let me let me put this out as an analogy to that. That 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 uh, question of driving on the road, you know, like whether you're going 40 or whether you're going 55, let's say they allow that, you know, there's like a 15 mile an hour sort of uh, t- frame that they allow people to determine whether you want to, if you're feeling you got to be Mr. Safety and you're going putt-putting along in the right lane at 40 and people that are like, ah, I, I need to get somewhere, I, I you know, like... I want to drive 55. You're still with it. You know, I'm saying that's within a boundary. And I feel the same, you know, it almost to me, it seems like the same way. Like there are people who, for whatever reason, you know, the tradition of receiving on the hand, they feel very comfortable with that. And, and that's, you know, like that's just the way that they, and their hearts are, you know, disposed in the same way that somebody who wants to go up, kneel down, receive on the tongue, I just don't understand why we can't agree that there's a reasonable boundary by which people can yeah. receive. Well, so 
But and, and looking, that one yeah. shouldn't be discouraged over the yeah. other. I mean, you know, or let's encouraged. let's stay with the particular example and just again, let's just talk it through. I mean, and I not I, I can't say that I have a perfectly clear answer in my own mind about it because I I can tunnel into this question from different angles. Mm-hmm. So, for example, let's just go back to the fact that Pope Benedict gave permission directly to priests to be able to celebrate the extraordinary form. What's the extraordinary? Well, form the tr- for- you know the the at least the nineteen sixty two missile. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, in Latin, you know, the way it was celebrated before Vatican II, right before Vatican II, there mm. there had been a reform of the liturgy, a couple of them in the early part of the 20th century. And who who tell me again who gave that permission? Pope Benedict the Sixteenth gave that permission yes. to yeah. bishops. No. To, to the priests directly. To the priest. Okay. To be able to celebrate the extraordinary form without the permission of their local bishop. Okay. Okay. The idea was this is going to bring some healing between those who have a love and affection for the, for the older rite, uh, you know. But generally speaking, it's the extraordinary form, not the ordinary form. The ordinary form is no sort of okay. okay. Both and the idea was valid, the idea would be a certain yeah. kind of accommodation to people that love that. Okay. Well, yeah. I, I, in the in the judgment and in the eyes of some, and, and I'm not going to make a judgment sure. about the the accuracy or inaccuracy of that. Some argue that 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 sort of indult created created division, liturgical division within the within the the liturgical community, because now you have these these kind of Catholics and those kind of Catholics. Okay, okay. you know those who are veiling, those who are not veiling, those who want to receive on their knees and those who don't. And blah, blah. Mm-hmm. and there, you know, and my argument is is that there's a lot of implied judgment going both ways. So it's, sure. it, you know, like the people that are all Novus Ordo or like, you know, who are these, who are these tradies that want to take us back into the, you know, to the yeah. old church. And, right, right, and right. then you got the traditionalists who are saying, you know, these lefty liberals who just, you know, everything's, Loosey you know, loosey goosey. Yeah. So everybody's spending their time at liturgy, um, you know, judging one another, okay, <laughs> which is not the purpose yeah. of liturgy. So sure. how, how much do we cut into what's essential to liturgy, which is common worship or coming together as one body in Christ? My argument is is that the particulars of what we decide to do are less important than the fact that in the context of liturgy, we should be all doing the same thing, at least within a diocese. And, and in fact, the bishop has that authority to decide what that sure. is. Okay. Okay, so that's how I would. Yeah, yeah. That's how I would, in general, I would say that. So when Pope Francis came along and changed that and kind of restored to the bishop his authority to decide whether and how and where the extraordinary form was going to be celebrated, mm-hmm. in in my opinion, because of the spirit and contentiousness of this, the way I would have handled that is I would have sat down with the members of that community and had an honest conversation and said, "What can we do to make this work? Let's address some of the issues." that we're having, mm-hmm. and uh, because I, I value what you love about the old liturgy, it's important to me as your bishop, and, and I want to figure out a way that this is going to work. And, and I personally, I think, maybe I'm wrong, but I think our bishop has done that. I mean, we have a designated parish, and, and yeah. but, there, there's, but there, there's some pushback saying, well, every priest, you know, Pope Benedict gave every priest the, the authority to be able to do this. Yeah. Maybe that wasn't a great idea. Maybe, maybe, maybe that that accommodation created a level of tension and chaos that actually had to be reined back in. But if I'm a bishop, I'm saying, look, I mean, the, the, there's a legitimate concern here that needs to be addressed, 
And so I would admit the exception, right? right? The more you descend into the particulars, the more the positive precepts should admit exceptions. This is one of these cases where I'd say, well, the issue is less about the particulars of how the liturgy is celebrated. It's much more about the hearts and the minds of these people who feel very disenfranchised by the experience of liturgy they've had in the Novus Ordo, typical Novus Ordo parish, because quite frankly, there's been a lot of liturgical abuse and a lot of loose goosiness mm. And that hasn't been fully reined in. It's way better than it was when I was growing up in the 70s and the 80s. But, you know, there's still a ways to go to, I think, embody the spirit of Sacrosanctum Concilium and really try to make the Sunday experience what it's really meant to be. Yeah. But so so to me, it's a both and. On the one hand, it's like I don't think being insubordinate and disobedient to the local ordinary is the way. Right. Because then it just becomes about you and your personal preferences. You're not respecting the common good. You're not respecting authority and due process. But at the on the other hand, if you have that authority, you have a responsibility to govern for the sake of the common good. Mm. And here's a contingency of your people that feel very alienated and very uh, separated from a tradition that's very dear to them, which was the prevailing liturgical tradition for you know hundreds of years, centuries. So, like, yeah. we got to do better at trying to figure out, you know, maybe it's a little bit, maybe there's some accommodation, and we do a better job of raising the quality of liturgy in the typical parish so that Ugh, we don't create, amen. you know. So, a- anyway, maybe that's just way too nuanced and uh, way too difficult and complex. <laughs> it's just easier to just, you know... But I, I think that that's what responsible governance has to do. I think what, yeah, for me, uh, you know, what I'm, what I'm hearing you say ultimately is that regardless of where I think um, in a, any kind of authoritative, like, dictate is coming from, whether I personally think it's, you know, very poorly discerned, you know, doesn't Ultimately, it doesn't matter. Like the greater the greater virtue that I have to exercise is being obedient to that. And and in my you know in my own way, being obedient to it doesn't necessarily mean that um, I can't. Uh, I just you know like I can't have my own personal <laughs> opinions or grievances about it. Right. But that it's. Uh, yeah, I get it. I mean, the church has experienced a lot of really bad moments by people taking it upon themselves to think that they know better or that they well, have the, the right Well, the whole problem the right that way. they're trying to correct, the traditionalists are trying to correct, is a problem of that kind of insubordination and everybody making it up for themselves. So how do you expect that you're going to rectify the situation by applying the same insubordinate principle of action? Well, you're, my, you're, my, just, you're just setting yeah. up the next generation to come along behind right. you and do—and that's the irony. I didn't point this out earlier, but the irony is, is you had an older generation that's now kind of in power, you could say, in authority, mm-hmm. that, that really kind of rebelled against the preconciliar tradition and, 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 and didn't—when I say that, I don't mean that too severely. I'm just saying, like— there could have been a little bit more restraint sure. and, and, and a little less getting caught up in the times. Yeah, oh right? yeah, for sure. And there were older people in authority that probably were upset by the way the younger generation of clergy just kind of ran with what they wanted. Mm-hmm. Well, now they're in authority, and now there's a younger generation that are doing exactly the same thing right. and trying to bring things back, yeah. and they're governing with an iron fist. It's like, hmm, that's interesting. That's ironic because 
you rebelled against that kind of iron-fisted authoritarianism, and now you're exercising it. Yeah. Because you have the you have the authority to do sure. so. Well, you're just going to end up with a, a revolutionary, unending cycle. Yeah. Of upheaval. Well, and and, and the young traditionalists, they're gonna they're gonna get their turn. Right. And if they try to impose these things by these kind of dictates in this way, they're gonna get the same blowback from a different generation that wants to go in a different generation. And what are you going to say? Right. It's like you you did exactly the same thing. So you've got to learn how to exercise authority in a more sure. responsible and well, more right. charity-driven way. Yes. And in my experience, my own experience of that is like um, you're always – the person who's pushing back is always uh, thinking that they're right. You know, like that they they know – better i mean that's me like i do it all the time like what why is this guy why is this priest why is this law you know saying that that this has to be this way because that's dumb and i know better than that and you know and i i'll stand on my you know like reasons i have a list of reasons why i believe that what i'm doing is right it's just hard yeah it's hard. it is hard I mean, it is. I mean, being obedient in that fashion, especially when you're subject to something that doesn't really actually make a lot of sense, that it takes great humility. But, mm. you know, no mas- yeah. no student is greater than his master, and that's exactly the model that Jesus gave us. And that's how he affected our salvation was through that sort of carrying his cross, par- that patient forbearance, and subjecting himself to an illegitimate authority, in fact— Mm. You know, putting God to death is not really a legitimate exercise of How awesome authority. would it be that yeah. if the authorities that were, you know, the authority that was making these decisions for us was Jesus? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's a, a little whole, easier. that's a whole other question. A but, but, you know, one other thing, too, before we, we wrap, I, I wanted to, to mention is that, you know, a lot of times the argument that people, you know, on the right will say is that, you know, that the bishops don't have the authority to change the tradition. But again, we have to get back to the distinction between what's essential yeah. and what's positivistic. Yeah. And I think that some of the things that some of the people on the right say is essential is actually positivistic. And not only do the apostles and their successors in union with the Pope have the authority to make those changes, even if they're not sensible changes, they have the authority to make the change. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but they have those changes have happened all the way down through the centuries in the history of the church. Mm. To to treat the, the liturgy prior to Vatican II as though it was some sort of static thing that never made adaptations. Now, some of the changes that were made, in 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 my opinion, they did go too far and we need to we need to we need to rein that back in. You know, but and, and that's a process that we need to continue to to struggle through as a church and really implementing the the vision of uh the document from Vatican II on the liturgy. Like, that's, we got to keep working at that. But but we have to do it through a, a, a due process and not in a one that, you know, kind of is rebellious because it, it all we do is create the chaos. Mm. And, uh, and, and through the patience and, um, and the willingness to, you know, we're all going to suffer things that, that aren't to our personal preference or things that we don't like or think we think should be otherwise. That's just life. Mm. Like, that's just the yeah. life of being a Christian, and no authority is ever going to get it uh, perfectly my, right. My wife is Even ourselves. A, you know, it's funny. I'm, I'm sitting over here, like, you're saying all these beautiful things, and I'm like, that's eh, my wife. Like, she's so, she's so good at just, like, listening and... uh 
and obeying. And I, I don't even know. I don't think internally I'm like, does she ever, is she like me? Does she ever think like, but that's so dumb. It's so stupid what you, you know, like she just goes along her way. Like, but, don't you, but I want to, I mean, yeah, I want to be more, I, I want that humility and that like, um, but you also probably want her to be more discerning. So I do. In that in your is true. in your relationship, right. you guys right. both represent like you push to the to the outward. Yeah. And maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle where yeah, there are times in which Becky's simple faith and obedience is the right response. Yeah. And there's other times when you're, you know, and that takes prudence and discernment. But we have to have a, a really profound reverence for the nature of law and its purpose yeah. to know when we should admit the exception mm. and deviate from the norm for the sake of a greater good that's really necessary and yeah. when we shouldn't. Yeah. And, you know, in the, in the context of our liturgical contentions in the church today, I think we should all be very cautious about tampering too much um, with something so sacred because we've already learned the hard lesson mm. And we've tampered, and now we got kind of a mess we have to clean up. But to do that in a kind of rebellious and insubordinate way is only going to worsen the problem. It's not going to bring about the, the the idealized future. Yeah, it's just going to sow that same spirit that we've seen two cycles of now, and and that's hard. That's hard. I mean, I I understand that that takes a lot of it takes a lot of discernment, wisdom, patience to actually know what is up to me to do and how I should do it. But the conversation shouldn't end. Like, to yeah. come back to these points on the liturgy, I don't think, I, I think there's, like, the, 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 the which direction the priests face, the use of Latin versus the vernacular in the church, the, 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 what kind of music is admitted into the sacred liturgy. Those mm. are, these are important questions. They are positivistic in nature, but they're not insignificant right. in their contribution to the essential thing that we're trying to do. Sure. So we shouldn't be flippant about it. Right. Or dismissive of any side of yes. the discussion. Okay. That's good. good well, stuff. yeah, I'm glad we were able to... We, Scratch the surface on that one. Well, I mean, it is. It's a big, <laughs> complicated, hairy, audacious problem. And, yeah. Um, I pray that uh, cool and detached heads and hearts will um, mm. prevail in this ongoing yeah. wrestle match with the way we should I pray be that, that all the decisions the being made will, will be the right ones according to my point of view. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all should be praying about what the Lord wants. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That right. That's the answer. And not assuming that's that the what one I want wanted is to what say. He wants. That's we, what I wanted yeah, to say. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, any other parting words? Well, you know, if you liked this podcast and you're liking what we're saying, please share it. Please comment. Please give us a review. Um, and don't forget to visit us uh, on the web at preambula.org to uh, find out all of the cool. Uh, opportunities that we offer for you to grow in your in your faith mm -hmm. uh, we again we're trying to lead people deeper into the heart of jesus and out into the world to share christ with other people because that's what we need right now in Amen. this world for sure all right man all right have a good one yeah you too bye, bye. the wise guys podcast is a production of preambule group a catholic ministry dedicated to helping you thrive in the heart of jesus 
Visit us on the web at preambula.org and follow us on social media.